Australia is going green. Well, we have no choice in that because everyone is going green because we are all worried about climate change. But it's going to be a costly transition. We need to invest in newer technologies. And for Australia, we're going to see a fall in exports of fossil fuels. So where do we sit in this new green future? Are we going to spend a lot to see slower growth? Or can we turn that thinking around? Uh, We'll look at that today on the Weekend Edition. The Morning Call from NAB with Phil Dobby. The Weekend Edition. And a reminder again, you're about to hear two people talking, neither of which is directly employed by NAB. So the views you hear are not necessarily those of NAB. But we are here to extend the national conversation, and that is the idea behind the weekend edition. And as I'm sure you know, Australia's emissions target is now to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to 43% below 2005 levels by 2030. That target was raised earlier in the year. A lot of that is going to come from declines in emissions from the energy sector, but that's obviously not all. There's transport, land use, forestry, industry, They've all got their part to play. The ultimate goal is net zero by 2050, pledged under the Climate Change Act. But that's all about meeting our climate commitments. What about Australia benefiting from climate change beyond our borders by replacing our fossil fuel exports with other energy sources, minerals and products made using green technology? The International Energy Agency issued a review of Australia's energy policy in April this year, saying the 2050 target was possible, but it needs a clear policy roadmap with milestones by sector and policy area and a way of measuring against those targets. In other words, the devil is in the detail, and maybe the detail shouldn't just focus on our domestic targets. It should include building up exports to replace our high-emission commodities that we ship overseas, which will, of course, become increasingly less relevant as the world decarbonises. Well, last month, Deloitte published a report, All Systems Go, Powering Ahead, Okay, it was commissioned by NAB. Let's come clean on that. But it highlights that there is much work to do. Otherwise, we'll just see exports decline by a projected $270 billion by 2050. Ouch! So what's in that report from Deloitte? How is this transition going to occur? Let's talk to Claire Ibrahim, who's uh, one of the authors at Deloitte. So, Claire, let's look at that $270 billion figure, first of all. That's the downside. That is presumably the fall in fossil fuel exports primarily. So is this the do-nothing scenario? This is what happens if we carry on as we have been. Yeah, that's right in some respects. So it's how we meet our target. So if you think about the 43%, that 2030 target that you mentioned earlier, and you think about the path to net zero, with that $270 billion decline in our exports, we're actually meeting those targets. Um, And so what that tells us is how we meet those targets matters. And that $270 billion decline in our exports really tells us that meeting targets is the bare minimum. You know, it's a necessary but not sufficient condition for economic opportunity and economic growth in a low emissions world. And so by meeting our targets, that tells us that we're declining emissions intensive um, activity in the economy to become net zero, but we're not really replacing it with anything else. Uh, And what Australia needs to do because of its high emissions economic structure and the historical way that our economy has achieved growth, which is really from fossil fuel based commodity exports, um, we have to replace that with something else. We need a new set of exports uh, to really grow our economy and offset the cost of transition. So as Australia can lower the cost of transition, 
you can get that kind of economic opportunity and that upside from replacing what's lost as we decarbonize with new low emissions intensive activity. And really that refers to kind of that green industrial activity that everyone is talking about. Um, that can give Australia a $435 billion opportunity as we meet our targets, but as we do more to meet them with those green industrial exports. And the world is essentially buying more from Australia as it decarbonizes because we're supplying what they will need to do that. Right. So that 270 billion isn't a do nothing scenario. That is the, well, we're doing everything we possibly can scenario, but we've got to do more because we've got to replace those, uh, those lost exports. But you say that everybody is talking about this. And of course they are around the world and everyone will say they have unique advantages. What are ours? Well, you know, Australia. <laughs> We always kind of, we've called it, you know, Deloitte Access Economics described it as economy made up of rocks, crops and cameras. And that refers to kind of our competitive and comparative advantages uh, in mining, uh, in tourism and in agriculture. Uh, and in the low emissions world, a lot of those traditional advantages are emissions intensive and rely on emissions intensity for their competitive advantage. Um, that's going to change. The world is no longer going to demand what we're selling. And so as part of our structural adjustment to become net zero domestically, we've got to build on our competitive strengths and our natural advantages, which can still be in mining. But instead of mining coal, we're obviously going to have to switch into mining low emissions um, inputs. So I say low emissions inputs because it's the critical minerals and the components that go into those low emissions products kind of outputs um, that the world is going to need to become net zero in and of itself. So we're going to have to kind of mix up what our natural advantages are today, um, build on them, but transform them into kind of new competitive advantages. Um, so we're actually kind of competing with the rest of the world as part of their decarbonisation journey. So we've got a lot of competitive advantages, but it's really about building on that and then transforming them to keep up the pace with the rest of the world. So obviously, I mean, we're already the world's largest lithium exporter. Mm. Uh, and, you know, there's lots of rare earth resources that are needed not just for the, the the greening of technology but just for high tech generally for our mobile phones etc so i mean there's demand for that stuff i mean a cynic would say well we can still take that out of the ground uh, you, you know the old-fashioned way because we've still got all those fossil fuels so we can mine for lithium and we can use big expensive machinery that's fossil fuel intensive and uh, and you know that's going to help us to, to to grow that export business yeah, and it's, you know, there are some really genuine kind of thinking going on the nature of that trade-off, right? Like if Australia's going to scale up uh, its capacity in, you know, mining critical minerals and the ultimate exporting of that, just like we're going to, you know, in theory scale up hydrogen to be ultimately green hydrogen, there's an initial period where it's quite logical that there'll be an emissions increase as part of that industrial activity because we don't have the full availability of low emissions tech or those processes um, that are at a commercial scale such that it's kind of a like-for-like like where it's low emissions from day one. Um, so there's some real logic in that, and that's something that Australia, as a, an emissions-intensive economy, that's looking to decarbonise domestically, but also do it in such a way where we're creating new industries for export, that's a trade-off. That's a balancing act Australia's going to have to get right um, because there's one task of meeting our own net zero commitments domestically, and there's the other task of doing that in a way where we don't, you know, perversely actually increase emissions in the interim to kind of hit, hit that end goal of those exports. And that is going to require kind of trade-offs um, and it's kind of some hard decision-making from a policy perspective on how that is done. Um, and I think that's true of actually most 
kind of industrial economies are going to have to get that balancing act right. Right. So we, there, there needs to be a transition happening at some point. But that so, and that transition is only going to happen, obviously, when the greening of let's talk about you know, for example, uh, lithium exports. If the greening of that industry becomes more cost effective. And is that going to happen in a hurry? I mean, okay, you know, politically, we've got these targets, but is it actually from, you know, from a pure economics point of view, how quickly is that going to happen where that transition is going to be to the advantage of the lithium exporters? Well, I think it's going to depend, you know, the nature of supply chain, those competitive advantages, what's going to be advantageous in one country compared to another as part of lithium exports, for example, that's going to be a highly place-based construct. And I think then when we add to that the nature of, I think, inevitable regulation and things that will have to come in uh, in terms of how those commodities are mined and exported, the nature of kind of responsible supply chains. Like if you think about ESG, and actually apply that as a concept to these supply chains, that's probably going to get more heightened as demand increases. Um, and, you know, there's also inevitable economic and environmental consequences um, of mining and expanding the capacity of mining for these other sectors. So, again, it goes back to kind of that balance point and the need to get that right, how regulation will maybe hinder or support the expansion of those supply chains and the capacity for critical minerals. Um, and also, I think ultimately, it probably comes full circle to the broader conversation on, you know, the climate crisis arguably comes down to the entire world um, consuming too much um, of emissions-intensive good. There's still that broader point around the need to be more responsible and think about circular economic activity and the upcycling and recycling of goods, and that includes critical minerals, um, and the role of kind of technologies and processes in monitoring that. Um, so potentially we don't have to dig up as much lithium as we otherwise would. We've got a better system in place that actually kind of upcycles and recycles it as part of a circular economy. And so they're all conversations that are actually going to have to happen in real time. So if you think about it, it's really only six and a half years to 2030. Um, yeah. And 2030 is the deadline for most kind of big policy actions and strategic interventions to hit interim targets. And hitting interim targets is what sets you up to be on the path to net zero. So it's not a lot of time to kind of get these things right. So do we have a plan for it? I mean, obviously, there's an, an even just for that domestic target, there's an immense amount mm. of infrastructure investment that's got to happen. Uh, you know, transmission technologies for uh, for electricity, for example, as we rely more on on electricity, I guess. So oh, and you know, uh, charge points for cars. You know, you name it. There's a, a long roadmap that has to be condensed in a very short period of time. Have we got a plan for that as to who's doing what? How much of it is from industry investment? What's the government doing, for example? What are state governments versus federal government? You know, do we do we really know who's doing what? I think it depends who you ask, right? But it's a good question. There are <laughs> there are national targets and plans. There are state-based targets and plans or even local government targets and plans. That's all kind of public sector-based. But if you switch to the private sector, there are corporate uh, plans to be net zero and how that kind of all adds up in aggregate to where Australia is at in its pathway. I think that's a really good question, which we haven't quite cracked um, in the level of detail, particularly when we start thinking about, you know, scope one, two and three emissions. But the plans, the framework and the level of coordination is obviously increasing kind of with each day almost at this point. There's a larger degree of coordination and kind of focus, all because we now obviously have that 43% target uh, for emissions reduction by 2030. That's kind of a, you know, the North Star at this point where all those other various plans start to come together to work to that. And obviously the current federal government uh, has made it clear that the work is now being undertaken for sectoral pathways 
on the path to meet that 43% target. Um, that's obviously a position Australia hasn't been in before. And so that's a really important kind of approach that has to happen to understand which sector is going to do heavy lifting and when to hit that 43, to hit that net zero. Uh, and that's a really important conversation that Australia hasn't had yet. And that will also ultimately, I suspect, I guess you could say trickle down into how corporates that are sitting in those sectors start to think about their own targets. Um, so I think the, the coordination is starting to get there. We're starting to see that, I guess, acceleration of decisions um, that need to be made to deliver on those overarching targets and commitments. But, you know, like I said, it's six and a half years and, you know, the things that you were just talking about, the scale, the sheer scale of what has to happen is actually kind of really hard for people to comprehend in some respects because we're looking to achieve the equivalent of an industrial revolution in a really condensed time frame. So the level of capital investment that has to go in, the nature of that capital reallocation as well. So we're not just going to keep spending what we would otherwise spend in the same way. We're probably going to spend that money, but we're just going to have to start spending it differently in alignment to these targets and plans because um, that's the only way we're going to be net zero at least cost. So we can be net zero, um, but we can be net zero at least cost. And they're really different concepts. And how these plans are set and how these plans are met um, is actually the real question at this point in time in terms of what will deliver at least cost uh, transition. Yeah, because there is the danger, isn't there, that we will say, well, okay, we've got this target for 2030 and for 2050. So let's work on achieving that target. And as you've said, that target means we lose 270 billion in exports and there's that 435 billion uh, upside if we don't just think about how we transition domestically but how we take uh, the opportunity for uh, expanding our exports and uh, and if the focus is just on the on the you know net zero target and not on that broader opportunity we're going to plan for the wrong thing aren't we yeah, absolutely so it's not you know like i said you can have the north star which is the target but it's really about how you meet them. And there's almost a infinite and different set of decisions and investments and kind of yeah. market incentives or policy ideas that can deliver you that outcome. And they each of them have different costs attached to them. Um, what we looked at in the report was one version of that um, where, you know, you can meet the targets. Um, that delivers you a relative economic cost or a higher cost of transition because you're just not replacing the activity that has to otherwise decline with something else. Um, or you can meet those targets, replace that uh, economic activity with a new kind of green industrial base and be in a position to supply the world um, and meet its kind of new demand profile as it becomes. Well, it is all about adding value ultimately, isn't it? And, and that has been part of our problem, hasn't it? That, you know, we've got huge supplies of iron ore. We've shipped it overseas. We've never really developed a steel industry. We've left that to others. Isn't there a danger that we do the same thing? And if we don't do the same thing and we say, well, OK, let's look at how we can uh, build up a domestic industry, adding value to, to, to some of our, uh, you know, some of the resources that we hold domestically. Uh, obviously, you start then adding labour costs, and our labour costs, you know, right on the edge of Asia, our labour costs are a lot more expensive than our neighbours. And I think that's why, you know, there's this shift in industry policy directly to your point. Australia is probably going to have to pick winners. I think if you'd asked an economist, you know, even myself several years ago about picking winners, particularly in industry policy, everyone would have said, no, no, you can't do that. That's a terrible yeah. idea. But, it, you know, the global dynamic of the race to net zero globally has changed um, in terms of picking winners and needing to pick what we will invest in and to almost 
pick our domestic contribution to global decarbonisation from an industrial perspective, obviously the IRA and kind of the Inflation Reduction Act and what the US have done, they've picked their winners um, and they're backing in what they think um, will be mm. their competitive advantage in that global race to net zero. So who picks who picks those winners then is the obvious question. It's the, so, I mean, you mentioned the, you know, what the US is doing and there's a massive amount of government investment happening there. So do we need to do the same thing here? And uh, and I hear you in terms of picking winners. I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's worrying, isn't it, when you see governments picking winners, but maybe it needs to happen and it needs to happen through consultation. So we get back again to the idea, surely there has to be a plan. There has to be some sort of public-private partnership plan about how we're going to tackle this and the clock is ticking. Well, you think about kind of the big global companies that have big global supply chains, and that is kind of in mining is the clearest example of that in Australia. I think they will pick their winners. They'll they'll look at the domestic policy settings and I would say the global policy settings in order to do that. But I suspect they'll pick their winners, they'll pick their commodities that they're going to back in and what role kind of Australia's supply chains have in that. And I'm not sure kind of government domestic policy in some respects, like where where their supply chains are global, it almost doesn't really matter too much what Australia's domestic policy settings are in some respects. But there's always kind of an incentive the government could throw in there um, to expand an industrial capacity for something. Um, But it's not purely a government play here because we obviously want you know, that business formation, that innovation kind of environment, the R&D and the funding, which government, again, clearly has a role in incentivizing. But you want that private market to come in and to allocate the capital to see, I guess, the return on investment very clear to them um, as part of this global shift. So it's kind of win-win for everyone. But again, it's going to be in some specific things, not everything. Um, and I don't think Australia has quite really nailed what that is. And there's certainly those questions have been asked and starting to be answered at different levels of government. Um, but we yet to, I think, fully see that come to fruition. And capital markets and kind of finance will be key to that, right? Like they will pick their own winners as well based on returns. Um, but the full kind of market structure that sees this make sense kind of gives Australia an answer to what those winners will be. We're not quite there yet. Um, but, you know, again, back to the point, the time point, it's going to have to be sooner rather than later. Otherwise, we really lose the window to keep up with the rest of the world um, and start to compete with the likes of the US and kind of those big countries that are shifting to green industrial activity. Again, not in everything, but for the things that we think will have a competitive advantage in. So just on, on uh, energy uh, exports, I mean, isn't it going to be the case that a lot of uh, energy use now, wherever you are in the world, is going to be domestically produced you know we're going to have solar cells sitting on our rooftops wherever in the world we are even scotland they managed to get a bit of sun occasionally uh, and wind power well so they, they've got lots of wind uh, and then there's other places around the world where you know ex- so you can't export that stuff obviously unless you're because it ultimately it becomes electricity hard to export electricity unless you're going to run very fat wires which for australia is a bit is a bit of a problem so if we're exporting stuff it's got to be stuff that can be put into a ship basically isn't it which is where maybe you look into uh, hydrogen power. But, you know, there's many parts of the world, like Canada, for example, would say, well, hey, look, we are leading the world in the development of, of the hydrogen industry. What, what, is, what is our advantage in, in terms of, you know, energy that we export? So I think there's, I guess, again, a few aspects to that. And you've got some, you know, people and companies and experts saying that maybe there is an answer where we're exporting renewable energy, um, obviously, by transmission and cables. Overseas, like there has been some, like some genuine discussion and attempts at thinking about what you know that could look like in the north of Australia, um, over to Asia. But 
you know, putting that kind of one question to a side, you're right, like the majority of that domestic energy is going to have to go into domestic consumption. So the question then becomes, if we're going to expand the capacity for that renewable energy system and that clean energy, it's obviously an input into something else. And so it's what is that something else we're going to use because that's what we can export. Um, again, with green hydrogen, we'll be using it domestically in theory um, to replace some of those emissions-intensive processes uh, for industrial production. Uh, but what we'll be using uh, with that hydrogen to produce a kind of a value-adding product or process, that's what we export. Um, so it's kind of the expanded capacity of those systems to you be used more um, and to do more, to create more in a way that we can export it. But also potentially there is a view that we might be able to export um, green hydrogen to our neighbours and we might be competitive um, at that. It's hard to say at this point, right, because the technology doesn't exist. We don't have a fully scale green hydrogen production facility. But some of our, I guess, place-based economic structures, if you think about central Queensland, for example, and Gladstone, they have a few competitive advantages and you're seeing investment. And, you know, I think FFI, for example, has been really clear about the potential that they see for this. Um, you know, everyone's having a good go at making that work. And you assume kind of the nature of engineering, economics and science will come together um, to make a version of that possible. Do we know fully when the scale um, or where it will be? Not quite yet, but a lot of people are working really hard at it. So I guess from my perspective, I'm optimistic it could happen. Um, I'm not going to rule anything out on the pathway to net zero at this point in time because economists tend to be really wrong when they make predictions that far into the future. Um, so I'm not going to put myself in that position. But I do think, you know, in practice, some of these things are going to have to become true. Otherwise, we're just not going to get to net zero at least cost. And we're not going to have that fundamental, fundamental shift in the production system of our domestic economy or the global economy. And ultimately, we're not going to avoid the worst effects of climate change, which is the objective of all of this as well. Well, yeah, I mean, those targets are there, aren't they? They're in law. So massive amounts of investment are needed just to meet those targets. And you're saying, well, on top of that, the, the return that you'll get from those investments is not just on on, on meeting that, uh, which is possibly a, a negative scenario f- for the economy because we're going to lose a lot of exports as a result of it. The upside of that investment is the fact that we could do so much more. And the question is what? And the answer to that is, well, we need to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, how... Again, I think how countries are not just Australia domestically decarbonised, but also think about what they're offering the rest of the world um, as part of this. Yeah, absolutely. We've got to offer them more. That's the that's the solution, though, isn't it? <laughs> good to talk, Claire. Uh, we, this is a conversation that's going to go on for a long time, but uh, it's good to at least have kick-started on the morning call. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that is it. That is the weekend edition for today. Next weekend, Katie Martin, who's the markets editor at the FT in London, will be joining me. We'll just be sort of chewing over where markets are generally around the globe. Just a bit of a catch up on all of that. Uh, And of course, we are back again with our weekday edition of The Morning Call back on Monday morning. Thanks for listening today. I'm Phil Dobby for NAB. I'll see you on Monday. The Weekend Edition. 